All right, if everyone to make their way back in, we're going to continue this afternoon. This is always the, uh, the dreaded session, the session after lunch where everybody's tired and full of brisket and chicken in their bellies. Um, but once again, if you want to stand up a little bit and kind of walk and pace a little bit, I don't think that'll distract you too much, Dave. You're pretty, yeah. So um, if you want to do that during this session, I also put on your tables uh, that has a Crossway Chapel logo on there. Um, did it really quickly this morning. Hopefully there's not too many spelling errors on there. Just uh, kind of a questionnaire for you all. Um, as we continue to do these catalysts, we want to keep learning on how to do them better. So anybody like free stuff? Free stuff? Okay, so I hate shamelessly doing this, but we will give away a $20 gift card to, we'll draw one person out who gives in one of these little surveys. We'll draw one out and give you a $20 gift card to wherever you want it to be. Um, so that will give you an incentive, because I know how some of you are wired, and that will help you to do this. So um, I'll give them now, we'll collect about the end of our time this afternoon, about 4.30 or so, and so please consider gift, doing that. Gift card where? To you, there, whatever they want. Like it's just like the equivalent of cash. No, because then I would have to like pay taxes on. Okay, all right. A gift card to the place of your choice. All right, I was just checking. I'm what trying to understand. Choose? It depends on if I'm home or I'm here. Yeah, when I'm in and out here. So, <clears throat> all right. Yeah. Here we go. Amazon wins. I can get a lot of stuff at Amazon. Amazon. It is. <laughs> all right, on your tables. There are these little white tools. Would everybody grab one? Grab your white tool. Everybody have one on your table? How many of you have ever used one of these before? Anyone? Okay, good. Good to see that some of you have. This changed my approach to flossing. Because I used to, you know, use little ones where you tear out the the string and wrap it around your fingers and shove it up in your mouth and 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 not that I can't do that, but this saves a lot of time. It's intentional. It's useful. And, um, and as I thought about that, and I put one on every table so you could go home with this as a souvenir or just use it. That's fine, too, especially if you haven't flossed in weeks. It's good, good to do. Your gums might bleed if you haven't flossed in a while. Have anybody experienced that? Yeah? Okay. Um, what do I want to say? I want to say... Disciple making, that was kind of my illustration earlier with flossing, is a lot easier when you've got the right tools. And so I would challenge you to think about as you take this with you, identifying your disciple making engine, that's a tool, right? Having a friend or a partner or someone that you're in it together with, that can be a tool or an aid in that process, Okay, so I just want you to think about what are the, the tools that God's given you to be able to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and, and let that just be a little reminder. Maybe every time you floss your teeth, you could think about how am I making disciples? Is that going too far? Okay, especially if you do it every day. If you do it once a year, not so much. Okay. But what if every time you flossed your teeth, you reflected on how am I making disciples who make disciples? Okay. Done. Now, moving forward. We're going to talk in this session about cookies and cookie jars and church planting. But first, I want to talk about chess. How many of you play chess? Anyone? How many of you are any good at chess? Okay. Glad to see that. I am not any good at chess. I sat down when my son was in fourth grade in chess club and I got beat by a fourth grader in three moves. <sighs> I found out that the chess coach had just taught him how to actually beat me in three moves, but that's beside the point. Uh, he applied it well. And so there's some chess pieces on your table. Feel free, free to uh, take one of those with you as a reminder of what I'm going to talk about. But um, <clears throat> here's what, what I was told. I was told, Dave, when you play chess, you are queen dependent, okay? So what I like to do is I like to get the queen out there on the board, and because the queen can go backwards and forwards and sideways, I, I think the queen's the most powerful piece on the board. So I am going to beat you with my queen. That's my intention. 
but I, I use the queen to try to accomplish everything. And so my friend told me, he said, Dave, if you want to be more effective as a, as a chess player, what you need to do is you need to remove the queen. You need to just take the queen off the board at the beginning of the game and surrender the queen to your opponent. And what that will do is it will force you to learn how to use all the other pieces on the board. Does that make sense? Now, once you can win without the queen, then he said, put the queen back in and you'll be more effective. So chess expert in the corner, our designated chess expert. How does that sound? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Have you played people who are queen dependent? Is it easy to beat them? Yeah. See? Right there. Yeah. Because we don't actually maximize all of the resources on the board. So I was thinking about this, and I began to think about the church. And I would like to suggest to you that the church is queen dependent. Now, when I say that, you might wonder, well, what does he think the queen is? I've had people suggest that the pastor's wife is the queen. And while I'm not going to argue with that, <clears throat> I would suggest to you that's not the queen I'm talking about. Um, what I would like to suggest to you is that the Sunday morning worship gathering is often like the way I use the queen on the chessboard. And we expect the Sunday morning worship gathering to accomplish all the purposes of the church. So that's where worship is going to happen best. That's where discipleship is going to happen. That's where ministry is going to happen. In fact, if we just get everybody to invite their unsafe friends to church, that's where evangelism is going to happen the best. Right? And what happens in our churches is we design all of the purposes that God has for the church to fulfill to be accomplished in an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. And then we wonder why we're not actually effective at making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Because we're queen dependent. And so I wondered, what if we applied this same strategy that my friend offered me to winning at chess to the way that we do and function as a church? What if you just canceled the Sunday morning worship gathering? What if you just stopped it altogether and then discovered how to be the church without the queen and how to use all the relationships and tools and resources that God's given us to fulfill the purpose of the church? And what if then, once we started being and doing the things that God has called us to do without the Sunday morning worship gathering, we added it back in. But we didn't depend on it for everything. Because we actually saw that worship and outreach and discipleship and evangelism and ministry could happen all week long. So, I like to challenge existing churches to consider what would happen if you canceled the Sunday morning worship gathering. The normal response I get is, everybody would leave. And I would like to ask, what does that say about how we as the church are functioning, if that's true? If everybody would just go find another church, what does that say about our church? But I'd also like to challenge those of you who are thinking, maybe God might have me be involved in planting a church in the future. I would like to suggest to you that the first thing you need to do is make disciples. That the fruit of disciple making is a church. And that starting with a worship gathering might actually slow you down in your disciple making process. One of the things when I was pastoring, we bought a piece of property up on a hill, beautiful location, overlooking Castaic Lake. 
And we hired staff to make sure that we had a fully functioning children's ministry and youth ministry and worship team. And we had all these volunteers that functioned to make Sunday morning amazing at our church. And I was driving to church one day and I just began to think about how much financial and labor resource went into that for us, it was three services, so, you know, five hours, you know, whatever, we were up there on Sunday morning. And I was grieved at the reality that if I added up our mortgage on the property and all of the salaries and everything that went into Sunday morning, we weren't seeing a whole lot of disciple makers come out of that. And so one of the things that I think that I would want to challenge you to be thinking about is we're multiplying disciples, leaders, groups, and churches that the church is birthed out of the disciple-making, grouping, leadership development process. But you don't need to start, you don't, you don't need the queen, in a sense, until you've figured out how to be the church first. Does that make sense? <laughs> All right, now I want to kind of just move us forward in talking a little bit more about leadership, okay? Because we need to reproduce disciples, leaders, groups, and churches. That's, that's what it takes to really be a movement. So, um, so I want to look at this quote um, from uh, Bob Logan. He says this, The number one limiting factor in reaching the harvest is leadership. The future of the church is in its leaders. Any church multiplication movement that wants to multiply churches must also find a way to multiply leaders, for it will quickly run out of existing, ready-to-go leaders, creating solid, reproducible methods for raising up indigenous leaders from the harvest will feed and sustain a church multiplication movement. So, once we're about multiplying disciples, then we need to focus on how are we raising up leaders. And I have yet to meet a pastor of a church who said to me, Dave, I just have too many leaders. I don't know what to do with them. Right? We always need more leaders. And as Bob says here, the leaders that we need are likely in the harvest. They're not in other churches and somehow we're going to recruit and attract them to come be a part of us. They're in the harvest. So we need to disciple these non-disciples to become followers of Jesus and disciple-making disciples so that we're raising up the leaders from the harvest for the harvest. So on your tables, you should find a card like this. Okay. This card <clears throat> is what I developed called the multiplication cycle. Everybody needs one, so let's see if you can find them, grab them, pass them around. And on this card, I've identified different questions that relate to the whole process of, of becoming a multiplying church. So the last questions on the back of the card underneath mobilizing leaders and teams. There's two questions there. They're on the screen, but I wanted to introduce you to the card. It has some great questions to consider. Two questions. How are you developing yourself as a leader? And how are you mentoring leaders around you? And I want to just take a couple minutes, two, three minutes, pair up with someone near you. And I want you to reflect and discuss these two questions. Okay. So before we talk about leadership, I want you to think about your own engagement in developing yourself as a leader and developing other leaders. Ready, set, go. A pair is typically two, if possible. Okay, two, not three, not four, not a whole table, two. Okay, pairs. I'm looking at you guys over there. Pairs, that's two. See, two together like that. Okay.
All right, let's uh, bring it back together, please. You guys like each other or something? <laughs> oh, really? How long? Weeks? Months? Six months. Congratulations. That's good. It's nice to see. <laughs> so here's what I want to tell you. 30 years this summer, and being an empty nester is awesome. I just want you to know that. Okay. All right, bringing it back together. So maybe you've heard this saying before, but I really believe it's true. Everything rises and falls on leadership. It'll come. It's coming. It's coming? It's I. I feel it. I feel it. Oh, look at that. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So here's some questions I want us to think about, okay? Where do pastors and churches find spiritual leaders? Where do you think? Where do you find them? Seminary. Seminary, maybe. (laughs) Where else do we find spiritual leaders? Internet. Internet. (laughs) Yeah. Spirit of God? Is that what you said? Yeah, we, uh, what is it, churchstaffing.com. Have, we, have you seen that one? That's a good one. Um, so I'm going to use this for a second here. So there are two ways <clears throat> that I believe we can, we can look for leaders. Uh, so here's way number one. Here's the pastor all by himself. Over here, we want to see the pastor with lots of people helping him and leading and a whole smattering of men and women who are exercising their gifts in leadership, right? So how do, how do we get from here to there? Whoops. There are, are two primary methods, okay? So this is the first one. The great thing about it is it's fast, okay? This is the second one. The great thing about it is it's slow, okay? So most times church planners and pastors don't want the slow method. So they, they opt for the fast method, okay? The fast method is to recruit ready-made spiritual leaders from somewhere else. And it's fast, kind of. But there's a problem. There's two problems, actually. One problem is there's a limited number... <laughs> of ready-made leaders who are willing to leave wherever they're leading to come join you in what you want to lead. Correct? The second problem, though, is what I call DNA mismatch. Okay? When you bring in a leader from outside... it's possible, just like, you know, when you have bone marrow transplant and they have DNA mismatch, that the, the leaders that come in that you've recruited well don't actually share the same values, the same commitment to mission, the same practices. And so what this DNA mismatch often leads to is agenda disharmony. And a lot of times when you hear about churches imploding or fracturing or splitting, it, becomes, it comes as a result of, of a disharmony at the core values of the church, which can many times lead back to they were too fast in trying to recruit and put outside leaders in place. So what's the other method? Well, I told you it's slow, but it's amazing how it works. It's raising up leaders from the harvest. Here's the great thing about this. Whereas this one is limited, guess what? This one is unlimited. Because there's always more leaders to develop, right? Secondly, whereas this one 
has the danger of DNA mismatch. What we have down here is we have DNA match because we actually developed them within the context of our ministry or our church. And so they are embracing the same values and the same practices and the same mission. Okay? So I'm going to talk about a little bit later what are the actual pieces in this process. Like what needs to be in place to actually raise up an army of leaders. Okay? But the reality is, if we keep looking to seminary or the internet or other churches to provide the leaders that we need, we'll never have enough leaders. The cool thing that I love about the Crossway Chapel Network of Churches is you guys have a commitment to this already, to raising up leaders. And so I want to encourage you to not only celebrate that with me, but to be involved in the process of not only being raised up, but raising up more and better leaders for the future. Okay? So, with that in mind, let me ask. We need a process for raising up leaders. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And who is responsible for the ongoing training and development of leaders? And this is what I, I would challenge you to think about is, is that Leadership development, leadership multiplication has to happen at every level within the mission and organization of your churches. So nursery leader volunteers need to be raising up more nursery leader volunteers because we're going to have more church plants that need quality nursery leader volunteers, right? Or volunteer leaders, whichever way you like to say that. If we're going to have more churches planted, we need more small group leaders raised up, which means small group leaders need to be multiplying small group leaders, right? We can't just send them all over to a class over here and expect, you know, uh, Pastor Kevin in the front row to, you know, do all of our leadership development. Leadership multiplication has to happen. The reproduction has to happen at every level. That's how we get a movement, all right. So anyway, that's why I want to talk to all of you about that, not just a few of you. The next thing, though, we have to ask is, what kind of leader do you need to be and do you need to develop? And so I'd like to throw out, that, that really isn't easy to read from way over there, is it? Is that, can you read what I wrote on the screen? Hardly. All right. Maybe I won't use that then. I'll just keep talking. Um, Three circles. Just draw three circles on your page. They can be interlocking or not. I don't care. But three circles that I want you to think about in terms of what kind of leaders. And in one circle, I want you to write the word no. In another circle, I want you to write the word be. And in the third circle, I want you to write the word do. For your role that you're in now, I want you to think about what do you need to know? What do you need to be, and what do you need to do? Okay? So, for example, being, we might think about you need to be a man or a woman of integrity. You need to be uh, uh, full of the Spirit, Spirit-dependent. You, you need to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Those are all being-related things. Right? What do you think about doing? Well, obviously, I've been talking about it all morning. I would say on the doing side, you need to be making disciples. Thank you. Appreciate that. You're with me. I like that. Okay. You need to be making disciples. Wherever you are on the leadership org chart, you need to be making disciples and keep making disciples because that's what every one of us has been sent to do. What's something else you need to do as a leader? Well, I think good leaders... One of the things that they do is they resolve conflict. I think that's important for every leader to know how to resolve conflict, to not let 
Conflict exists and tension within the body of Christ. We keep short accounts with each other. We resolve conflict. Every leader needs to know how to do that. I, I want you to, I'm not going to fill it all in for you. I want you to think about what in your role as a leader, wherever you are, leader in your home, in your family, leader in the church, leader even in, in, in uh, the community as you're a, a disciple maker. What is a leader? What kind of leader are you? What do you need to know? What, every leader needs to know the gospel. I'm reading this great book that I just got this week called Gospel Fluency, talking about how we speak the truth of Jesus into the stuff of everyday life. Every, every leader needs to know how to communicate the gospel. I would say with that, every leader also needs to know what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. So that if you're in a small group, you're having coffee with someone, and they start talking to you about something that's not the gospel that you can recognize that and be able to speak the truth of the gospel into that situation. When someone's not living out the truth of the gospel, that you can, can, can speak that fluently. D does that make sense? That's, a, that's a, something you need to know and then something you need to be able to do. So I, I want to challenge you about what kind of leaders do we need? And it starts with knowing what kind of leader you are and what you need to be, and then it goes down to the next level. What kind of leaders do we need to develop? So how are you raising up another leader, whether you're leading a small group, whether you're, um, I don't know, any other, you know, expression of leadership within your church, because it's so varied, you know, here. What kind of leaders are you developing? And then we get to talk about how are you going to develop them, okay? So, What I, what I want to challenge you to think about is how do we develop an enduring leadership culture, okay? So five things. I'm just going to throw them out there really quick. First, we need a commitment to lifelong learning. Leaders are learners. They never stop learning. They refuse to believe that once they've attained to a certain position of leadership, that somehow they've arrived. Their pursuit of learning never stops, so you need to have a passion for your own growth as a leader. Secondly is authenticity, right? People long for authentic leaders. So we want an environment that you can display authentically who you are, which means you've got blemishes, you make mistakes, you fall down, you actually sin every picking day. So let's not pretend that that doesn't happen. Let's be authentic leaders and recognize that we are in the process of spiritual growth, but we can't be fake. Thirdly, a servant's heart. Jesus modeled servant leadership. So as leaders in our culture of leadership development, we, we need to emphasize a heart to serve, which means every time... I don't know if I say this, then I'm going to lose my eternal reward, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Okay, so every time I walk into a restroom, wherever I am, and I see paper all over the place, whether it's over the counter, on the floor, I know Kevin would never do this. If you know Kevin, he would never do this, okay? But I pick it all up, and I throw it in the trash. I know you wouldn't do it, brother, and it's okay, because we don't want you to get sick. What's that? No gloves. No, I just take another paper towel and pick it up and throw it away. But, but, and I haven't gotten sick yet that I know of. But why do I do that? Well, one, I made this commitment a long time ago that I need to be a servant when nobody's looking. And this is just one of the ways. So I'm in an airport the other day, and I'm sit, going around picking up all the paper and throwing it in the trash, right? Because it's just, it, it's my reminder that I, I, I have to be a servant. I look for ways to serve, Okay? So we, how do you cultivate that servant heart? That needs to be part of your culture. And then accountability. You need to value and love personal accountability. I was talking with a pastor who had mentored me for many years, and he said to me one time, he said, Dave, you don't have to tell anybody what movies you watch. And I'm like, ooh, I don't like how that sounded. I mean, I agree I don't have to tell anybody, but what, is that, what does that say about my willingness to be accountable for the choices and the decisions that I make? How open are you to let people question who you're becoming and how you're functioning as a leader? 
A leadership culture has to value accountability. And I've decided to change my language up recently. Instead of holding people accountable, which sounds like I'm going to judge you whether you did things right or wrong, I've decided to embrace the idea that I hold people capable. And what that means is I actually believe <laughs> that you're going to make the right choices. And so I'm not checking up on you to find out, you know, from a do or don't process. I'm actually following up to see what happens when you succeed at doing what you said you wanted to do. But what if we had a culture that actually helped each other to exceed our own expectations for ourselves? I think it'd be awesome. And then finally, intentional mentoring. Healthy leaders reproduce healthy leaders. So how are you engaged in actually making leaders, multiplying leaders, investing in leaders, looking for ways to raise up leaders? That's the key, I believe, for a leadership, a healthy leadership culture. All right, so now, time to breathe. Okay. Is this making sense? I know it's after lunch. I should probably make you stand up right now or something. Okay. I'm not going to, though, because I, I got more I want to say. So I want to tell you on the next slide, I think, what I think are key steps in this process for developing a leadership pathway, okay? Seven key steps, all right? So number one, I guess I'll write them in even if you guys can't read them over there just for the fun of doing it, okay? So number one is maturing. And notice it doesn't say mature. It's not like, oh, well, first you have to be mature before you can be a leader. Because guess what? That type of maturity in most churches is based on knowledge. I like the word maturing because to me, maturing is based on obedience. So what I want to know as I'm working with potential leaders is, how are they actually doing what Jesus said? Back to that resolve and review, the teaching to obey mechanism, right? So what's important is not how much do you know of the Bible, but instead, how are you actually doing what Jesus said? So you could be a Christian for only six months and actually be maturing more than someone who's been a Christian for 60 years. Because oftentimes, the person who's been a Christian for 60 years is just kind of resting in what they know rather than being challenged by what does the Spirit want me to do in response to what I've just read. Does that make sense? So the first step is maturing. Okay. Second step <clears throat> in the process then is missional living, right? And I look at missional living from a just real practical standpoint. How are you living on mission with the non-Christians in the world around you? Do you have any non-Christian friends? Do you spend time with non-Christian friends? Are you living out the gospel before people who aren't yet following Jesus? Guess what? Every Christian should be living out the gospel amongst the people around them that don't know Jesus, right? Anybody here get a buy on that? Can you show me the verse that says everybody's not supposed to do that? I, I haven't found it yet. We all do that, right? So we all should be maturing. We all should be living on mission. And then the next one, number three, is making disciples. We've already hit on that a lot, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But I, th I think that our leadership pathway has to include an emphasis on making disciples. Otherwise, guess what happens? We end up with elders and pastors and leaders who have never ever made a disciple. I was talking with my pastor friend Jeff on Monday, and I asked him this question, what do you do with elders and pastors who aren't actually making disciples? And he said, I sit down with them and I tell them, you're disqualified to be an elder or a pastor. And I invite them to repent. And I was blown away. It's the first pastor I've ever talked to that's actually said that. That we hold people accountable to doing what Jesus said. Otherwise, what do we have? We have disobedient pastors and leaders. So, 
obviously, making disciples has to be a part of our leadership development pathway. And it's at the beginning, not at the end, okay? Then, next is modeling. So we focus then on, as we look at those people who are maturing, living on mission, and making disciples, we invite them to watch us as we model leadership. And then we give them an opportunity to begin to model leadership, to be an example of, of leading. And, and really, the reality is leadership development happens in the absence of leadership, right? So I have to stop leading to give you the opportunity to model leadership. So first I show you how to do it, then I get out of the way, and I let you do it. Modeling, and then right alongside that is mentoring and coaching. And that's one of the things I love to do, where not only then do I give you the opportunity to start leading, but now we start having conversations about your leadership and raising your awareness and your ability to listen to God and follow what he's saying. And I begin to encourage you to start inviting others to follow your leadership as you model to them and you start getting out of the way to, to develop other leaders. And then mobilizing, next step, is where you actually then start equipping other leaders to mentor more leaders. So this multiplication process is continuing to develop more and better leaders all over the place. And then at that point, then I'm up here to multiplying. Because after I see that you're maturing and obeying Jesus and you're living on mission with lost people and you're actually making disciples and you're modeling leadership practices and you're mentoring others to model leadership practices and live on mission and make disciples and you're then coaching others to do that and now you're mobilizing other coaches you're ready to go out and multiply this thing all over the place but a lot of times what we see in our leadership development process is we don't have this as the goal of actually you becoming a multiplying leader okay we really just want someone to take responsibility for the work that needs to get done around here. So we, we ignore, like this is my baseline. This is the starting point for leadership development, really. And we ignore that. We really don't care if you're engaged with lost people or you're making disciples or you're maturing. You're a warm body. You have leadership ability in, in, in the workplace or in the home that we see. And so then we invite you in to be a leader because we need people to do the work. And that's why we have a lot of churches that are led by non-maturing and non-disciple-making and gluten-free, non-metro. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I think this is a real problem in the church today because we don't actually have an intentional leadership pathway. So my challenge to you is to think about what is our culture for leadership development? What are the steps we're taking to make sure that we are modeling and mentoring and mobilizing the right kind of leaders? And then how are we reproducing that to send out more leaders to see more churches all over the place? Does that make sense? Okay. Cool. Cool. All right, now I want to talk about cookie jars. Can I do that? Can I have just a few more minutes? Are we doing okay? All right, sorry. What's that? Yes, I love cookies. Anybody here love cookies? Okay, I've decided, though, that I love homemade cookies. I think homemade cookies are the best. I like the chocolate chip, Toll House, or whatever they are, that are just oozing all over the place. I also like the white chocolate with the macadamia nut ones. Those are pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I'm, really not, I'm really not too disappointed by anything that just came out of the oven. I like homemade cookies. And I think that churches 
and church plants in particular need to be very focused on making cookies. That making cookies, homemade cookies, should be their number one priority. And yet what I've seen is a lot of churches and a lot of church plants, instead of focusing on making cookies, do you know what they talk about? The cookie jar. Because what they really want is a really cool cookie jar. And if they can find the best location and have the really cool visual graphics going on and the really awesome worship band, that cookie jar, they think, will attract cookies from other cookie jars that will come and be a part of their cookie jar. And they love the idea of a full cookie jar, even if they haven't made any of those cookies. Are you with me? Now, here's what I want you to think about. Imagine you go to somebody's house, and you get there. Maybe it's grandma's house. I don't know. And they have a cookie jar. And they offer you a cookie. And you're thinking, if you've got a cookie jar, it must have what? Homemade cookies. That's what you're thinking. So you say, of course I want a cookie out of your cookie jar. And they bring you your, the cookie jar, and it's full. Anybody know what these are? These are store-bought, store-brand even, vanilla wafers. Anybody get excited about Nilla wafers in the cookie jar? Anybody? Anybody? I'll share them with you. They're really good. They're fresh, I think. Actually, I didn't actually check the freshness. I just bought them at Walmart yesterday when I got to town. Low prices, though. Oh, cool. They're good till July 13. So what do they have to take out of it to make it last that long? You ever wonder? So imagine you go to the house, and they offer you, here, Brian, have a cookie. Would you like one? <laughs> it's up to you. You can take one if you want. Go, you're good? <laughs> All right. They, there's something wrong with store-bought cookies. In the, isn't it? Isn't there something wrong with this picture? And yet, how many churches get really excited to get cookies that they didn't make to show up in their cookie jar. I want to just really challenge you as we think about making disciples, developing leaders, starting groups, and multiplying churches that we really can't be focused on the cookie jar. And in fact, <clears throat> I would suggest to you that cookies don't belong in a cookie jar. And that's where my analogy breaks down. But I think cookies are for eating, <laughs> not for being stored. Yeah. Or they're for giving away and passing on to others. And so the cookie jar is less important than making really great cookies. And if we want to see churches grow and multiply all over the place, I think it's going to happen because we're focused on making cookies, that that's what it has to really be all about. So I want to wrap up just by talking about three phases that relate to multiplying churches. And it looks kind of like this, submerge, emerge, and converge, okay? So phase one is kind of the submerged phase, phase two is the emerge phase, and then phase three is the converge phase. And you say, Dave, well, what does that mean? Well, let me talk about each of these individually. So submerge, next slide. Basically, you're thinking about everything that happens underwater or underground, okay? So what is going on in the submerge phase? Well, that's where we're getting really clear on the mission of Jesus. That's where we're um, making sure that we have the right core values and practices. That's where we're <clears throat> understanding what's unique about the, the culture around us right? The people who don't know Jesus. That's where we're actually refining our disciple-making engine and really getting it to work, okay? Then that leads us next into the emerge phase. What happens in the emerge phase? 
Well, as you're planning a church in the emerge phase, this is where we actually begin to start blessing others in our community. We start looking for tangible needs that we can meet so that we can develop relationship with people and give them the opportunity to hear the gospel and accept or reject Jesus. Okay? This is where our, our ministry begins to emerge even in new places. So it's where an existing church starts to focus over here and, and begin to see some fruit from our initial disciple-making efforts. And then, as we start making disciples, then we come into the converge phase, where we begin to say, how can we worship together and celebrate what God's doing in our efforts to make disciples. Does that make sense? So I want you to think about these three phases are really important. And if we jump to the converge phase and we haven't actually aligned ourselves well with Jesus' mission or started engaging in blessing others in our community and meeting needs and, and being the gospel, in a sense, to others, then don't be surprised when we have a church full of store-bought cookies that aren't actually engaged in making disciples, okay? So <clears throat> here's what I want us to think about in terms of the actual process that this might take to birth a church, okay? So <clears throat> next slide. When you are involved in making disciples and raising up leaders and starting groups, as you see groups begin to multiply... That is the nucleus for the new church, okay? And my challenge to you to be, when you have multiplied three groups, maybe it's in a new geographic area, whether it's near or far, so whether you go to another country or whether you go to, I don't know, what's near here? I saw the sign I was driving in. Johnstown, Johnstown, is that it? And Milliken, right? Isn't that what's on the sign over there? So whether you're in these areas where we don't have a, a crossway church yet, when you have three groups in that geographic area, start meeting once a month to celebrate what God's doing. And when you have four or more groups, start meeting twice a month. And when you have five or more groups, consider whether God wants you to start meeting weekly for worship and a new expression of his church has been born. Because the reality is, when you have five or more groups... That's 12 to 15 adults plus a ton of kids. At 5 times 15, you're at 75 adults. And with this area, I'd say it could be 30 to 50 kids. Could be, right? So let's go conservative, 30. You have 105 people that are now part of that church that has been born through the multiplication of disciples, leaders, and groups. 105 people is larger than 85% of the churches in this country. And rather than starting and struggling <laughs> to figure out how are we going to reach people, how are we going to get people to come, how are we going to be more attractive than the other church down the street, we actually see the fruit of our disciple-making has birthed a congregation. Does that make sense? And we can see this happening all over northern Colorado if we start first with making disciples who make disciples, who make disciples to the fourth generation and beyond. As we see that happening, we raise up leaders, we multiply groups, and then we see churches born. So my challenge, is that it? Hang on a sec. Oh. Yep, that's all I have slide-wise that I want to say. Okay, so my challenge to you is to consider what part does God want you to play in this process? Can I pray for you? Cool. Lord, thank you. I know I get a little excited about this, Lord, but you've given me such a passion and I want others to catch it that it's all about making cookies. Lord, help us to make disciples Help us to be obedient to what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to show and demonstrate our love for you by actually doing what you said. And may that permeate 
our lives and the lives of our family and the lives of our neighbors as we join you in your mission. I pray for your favor, Lord. I pray for fruitfulness from the efforts of each person in the room. May you, may you bless them as they seek to follow you. In Christ's name, amen.